When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here with new episodes every Thursday, so make sure to subscribe. Today we bring you the story of St Milberger, whose legacy has dipped in and out of the limelight throughout English history, and yet she was a princess, an abbess, and a woman of international renown. And here to tell us more is Senior Properties Historian Dr Michael Carter. Hello, it's a pleasure to be back and to be speaking to you today about St Milberger and Wenlock Priory, which isn't far from the Welsh border, the very western bit of England in Shropshire. And it's a real pleasure, especially to be speaking about this, because it's one of only four monasteries currently in the care of English heritage that has a history of occupation during the Middle Ages by nuns. And that's something we'll get onto in a bit more detail with you, Michael. So St Milberger, who was she exactly and why is she an important figure? She's of considerable historical, religious and cultural importance. She lived in the late 7th and early 8th centuries. That's a time when the peoples of Anglo-Saxon England were being converted to Christianity. She was acquainted with some of the key players in the conversion of the English. Its legacy is still with us today. Now, the people she was acquainted with, and we'll be talking about in more detail, are St Theodore, the great reforming Archbishop of Canterbury, who's originally from Syria, and the fame of Milberg's or Milberger's monastery at Wenlock, was to reach mainland Europe. It's just an indication of just what a significant figure she was. Now, monasteries played a key role in the conversion of the English, and the role of nuns in this needs to be acknowledged and is sometimes uh, underappreciated. Milberger, like her near-contemporary St Hild or Hilda at Whitby, was an abbess head of a so-called dual monastery of monks and nuns. She was an able administrator, and her accomplishments and holiness ensured that after her death, in around about 715-716, she was to be venerated as a saint. A memory of her saintly deeds and endured and was key to the identity of the monks who settled at Menlock in the aftermath of the Norman conquest. And her relics or physical remains as we'll find out, worked loads of miracles and attracted pilgrims. A magnificent church was built to house these relics, and it was then rebuilt in the 13th century. And the ruins of this that you can see today still, I think, have the power to impress. And she really does remain a focus of local pride in Wenlock and the surrounding area. Quite a lot to pack into that introductory section there, so we can really tell that she was a very important person. Isn't there, though, a bit of mystery about St Milberger? Because you mentioned that her death dates aren't quite certain, and aren't her birth dates, well, isn't her birth date, quite uncertain as well? 
yeah, there's nothing unusual about that at all either for this period. We're working with a limited number of written sources. Now, these written sources are very, very informative indeed. There's something else that's worth saying about Milberg or Milberger, and I'm probably going to go between the two um, unconsciously as I do this. And she's one of these Anglo-Saxons who annoyingly has variant spellings and variant versions of her name. So Mildberg and Milberger are equally correct. I see. And of the information that we do know about St Milberger, what sort of world and family did this young girl grow up in? And whereabouts? Obviously Shropshire you've mentioned, which is in the Midlands, in the uh, West Midlands really, um, the county uh, near the Welsh border. Well, her family was dead posh, basically. She's part of the Anglo-Saxon ruling warrior elite. Her father was called Meadowaller, and he was ruler of a kind, a kind of tribe called the Magonsate, and it's a sub-kingdom of the great Anglo-Saxon kingdom, kingdom of Mercia. And that, as you've already indicated, covered much of what's now the English Midlands. Now, her mum um, had various versions of her name, Domna Iaf, also called Domniva and Ermberger. Well, she was also of royal blood. She was a Kentish princess. Now, for people who aren't familiar with the geography of England, Kent's the county, which is in the southeast tip of England, closest to mainland Europe. Was this also a time where these powerful community figures were the first adherents to this new religion of Christianity. Yeah, now there were still Christians in what's now England as a consequence of the Romans, the people who had adhered to their Christian faith, even though the Anglo-Saxons who were pagans had invaded, and they'd moved to what's often referred to as the Celtic fringes of the British Isles. But yeah, in terms of the Anglo-Saxons, wow, Milberger's family was really involved in this. Let's start with her mum. Her lineage included King Ethelbert of Kent, who a couple of generations earlier had welcomed St. Augustine and his fellow Christian missionaries from Rome when they landed on the Kentish shore at the closing years of the 6th century. Now, he'd allowed them to establish a base in Canterbury at what becomes St. Augustine's Abbey. It's an English heritage site as a base for their missionary activity. And from there, they fanned out across England. And in 660, Meadowall, Milberger's dad, converted to Christianity and was baptised. What about the rest of the family? Did they have strong, pious convictions? Yeah, it was an age of conversion, but also very bloody warfare. And that really did mean that this was an age of saints and the implications of that were felt for felt in Milberger's family. They really do seem to have been distinguished by their holiness and piety. Milberger's mum founds the monastery of Minster in Kent, became its first abbess. Evidence compiled by English Catholic hagiographers, that's writers of saints' lives in the early 17th century, says that she was indeed a saint and had a feast on the 19th of November. She was succeeded as abbess of Minster by her daughter, that's Milberger's sister, and she was called Mildred. And she too was to become a saint. Her relics especially esteemed at St Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury, actually. Whilst another of the daughters and a sister of Milberger called Mildeth, while she goes off to Northumbria, 
great nursery of saints in the Anglo-Saxon period. And she also becomes a saint. And two of her uncles are likewise the focus of veneration and become saints. Now, what the dad, well, he doesn't quite achieve sanctity, but he does what any good, pious Anglo-Saxon king should do, and he founds monasteries. Now, one of the things I'm quite curious to know about is whether she was a contemporary of this other saint that you mentioned, Saint Hild, because one of our first podcasts, Michael, you'll remember, is um, the one about the synod at Whitby, which, of course, St Hild would have presided over, this one that decided the date of Easter. Now, Northumberland, where St Hild would have lived, is about 200 miles northeast of where uh, where Milberg was based in this Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Mercia. So did their paths cross at all? Did they know each other? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Hild and Milberger are near contemporaries, and they're both princesses. And they're both important abbesses who became saints. How is that for a set of things you have in common? Well, a bit more about Hild or Hilda. She's of royal Northumbrian birth. She becomes a nun. She founds the monastery at Whitby, which becomes famous for its learning and holiness. And as you've said, is the site in 664 for the famous Synod of Whitby, when various disputed aspects of church custom, especially the date of Easter, are settled. Now, the School of Whitby provides training to five future bishops, all important missionaries. Now, St Hill dies in 680 and is immediately regarded as a saint. And missionaries from Northumbria, including St Chad, who dies in 672, were active in Mercia. So there's a link there, even though I don't think that there's any, well, there is no explicit evidence that Hild and Milberg have met, but they know people. They're almost certain to have known people and the reputation of people. They have people in common. And also don't forget that this is an age when people really are moving across the kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England and indeed beyond. For instance, St Theodore of Canterbury, who comes from Syria to Rome and then goes on to be Archbishop of Canterbury. He indeed is an acquaintance of both Hilda and Milberger, so there's a connection there as well. Ah, very interesting that people of certain types flock together, don't they? And also, I do think that you know, there's it's a bit of a cliche now about you know more than uniting than divides, and you know I think that is true perhaps as much in Anglo-Saxon England as it is in the England of our own times, that there's an awful lot of things that bind these, even though these kingdoms are always at war against one another, but there is an awful lot that they have in common that binds them together. And there is an awful lot of movement, not just of people, but of ideas and of cultural objects between them. Mm. And religion would have been one of the pieces of glue that would have held them together Absolutely. It really is a tie that binds. When these people are converting to Christianity, they are sharing a common religion. So they see a common route to salvation. Something else that St Hild and Milberger had in common was this connection to double monasteries. You gave us a brief description at the start, but uh, a double monastery comprises who and what exactly? Well, there's a kind of clue in the name. They have both monks and nuns together, and they're of Frankish origin. And just a little 
introduction to who the Franks were. They're Germanic peoples. They're of huge political, cultural, and religious significance. They establish what's essentially the what becomes the Kingdom of France, and their influence is felt as much in Anglo-Saxon England as it is in some other bits of Europe. Now, as I said, these double houses have both nuns and monks, and there is always an abbess, invariably of royal birth, at the head. Now, even though the monastery has both female and male components of the community, the monks and nuns were strictly segregated and worshipped separately. They had their own churches, and they also lived strictly segregated lives. Now, the most famous Frankish double house at this time was at Shell, and that's not far from where Paris is. Now, there were links between this monastery and numerous Anglo-Saxon double houses, and that includes Wenlock. And Wenlock itself, as we've described, it's in Shropshire. What drew her to Wenlock in particular? Well, it's a very much a family connection. It's been founded by her dad in between about 670 and 680. Its first abbess was a French nun from Shell, and when first founded, the name of Wenlock was a Wimnicas, and St Botulf, an important East Anglian bishop, was involved in its foundation. And it seems that the monastery at what we now call Wenlock was originally subject to a monastery called Ikanho, probably Icon in Suffolk. Now, I think Merriwal, that's, um, if to just refresh your memory, Milberger's dad, his intention of founding the monastery was so that Milberger would become its abbess and probably to set up the monastery as a kind of family mausoleum. Now, that's what the monastery at Whitby becomes. It becomes the family mausoleum for the Northumbrian royal house. So it's a statement of his family's piety and it's also a statement of their prestige and power. The importance of the monastery beyond that, I mean, what else do we know about it? Was it, say, architecturally significant or was it one of the first in that region, in that kingdom or what else do we know? Well, this is a time when the Mercians are being converted to Christianity And Wenlock is most definitely an important religious centre for the conversion of the uh, Mercians and also the consolidation of Christianity within the kingdom. We know a little bit about its religious importance and its fame indeed. A letter written by St Boniface, now he's an Anglo-Saxon monk who dies in 754, who's uh, the missionary to Frisia, Germany and Netherlands. And that really does show the contemporary religious fame of Milberger and her monastery. Boniface describes a vision of the afterlife experienced by a monk at Milberger's monastery, who, whilst his brother monks were singing prayers over his lifeless corpse, and I'm going to quote from the letter here, returns to his body at first light, having left it at Cockrow. Now, news of this miraculous event really did spread widely. Boniface learned of it from the abbess of Barking, while his letter recounting the event was addressed to a nun at Wimborne in Dorset. So I really think that does show the widespread fame of Milberger's monastery. And the so-called Testament of Milberger, which although it survives in a late 11th century source, gives an apparently authentic account of how Milberger expanded her monastery's estates 
And it really does give insights into land ownership, processes of donations and purchases by monasteries at this time. And it just leaves us with no doubt that Milberger was an incredibly able leader indeed. Now, some fragments, so you mentioned what was it like architecturally, some architectural fragments, the footprint of the Anglo-Saxon monastery was discovered in 20th century archaeological excavations. And you can see it's very small compared to what follows it. But you can see when you visit the monastery now, it's been laid out in the turf. And it's of a scale you would see at Anglo-Saxon monasteries across England at this time. And the architecture indeed is influenced by French and even Roman and Mediterranean models of, of what a church should look like at this time. Okay, so what Milberger would have seen in her lifetime is basically laid out as sort of mostly foundations and low-lying masonry. At the Absolutely, and, and also a small fragment of what she might have known. I'll, I'll just throw that in, that, you know, these sequencing of architectural remains from the Anglo-Saxon area, apart from, especially from this time, is quite difficult. And these monasteries, even in Anglo-Saxon monasteries, were the focus of continual processes of rebuilding and renovation, just as much as monasteries were later on in the Middle Ages. And the way it appears today to visitors, how would you describe that? It's obviously quite impressive, the ruins, aren't they? Wow. I can remember the first time I went there and you see it, you, you get your first proper view of them after going to the visitor centre. You walk down this pathway where the ruins are screened from you by a hedge and I turned the corner and saw them when I saw them for the first time and it really was a little bit of a jaw-dropping experience. They are hugely, hugely impressive and you know they're heavily ruined as a consequence of Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. But I went there with my partner and I stood at what would have been the western end of the post-conquest church. Then he stood at the other end. This is the church at its fullest extent after an eastern lady chapel had been added in the 14th century. And it is of cathedral-like proportions. And the remains which you can see are late 12th, 13th to 14th century. And they are, I think, breathtaking. And it's amazing, isn't it, what you get when you go to an English heritage site. You don't just get the story of, say, St Milberger. You get all the other layers of history thereafter as you sort of peel back the onion, which is really great. That's a really good way of describing it. I mean, that's not just the ruins of the what was, as I said, a cathedral-like church. There are remains of the cloister, including the fountain where the monks would have ritually washed before entering the refectory nearby. There's the chapter house with some brilliant bits of um, a Romanesque, that's a 12th century sculpture. And there are other well-preserved buildings which, um, you know, respect the privacy pleas of the people who live there as it's now a private house. And there's also, you know, bits of the precinct wall and an imposing tower, just giving a sense of the, the wider context of these buildings. You know, it would have been very, very different in Milberger's time. And I think it's important to add here that in Milberger's time, there would have been two churches. Now, what's laid out in the grass at the English Heritage Site was probably the monk's church, whereas the nun's church is a little to the west and is probably where the parish church, where Milberg remains a focus of veneration, still stands. Now, there's completely lost buildings from the Anglo-Saxon monastery. There would have been dormitories for the monks and nuns, separate ones. 
refectories where they ate, workrooms, possibly cells for their individual devotions, infirmaries for the care of the sick. And also we must remember that they were great centers of hospitality and also power. So there would have been a guest house, probably a kind of quasi palace perhaps for members of Milberger's family and other important Anglo-Saxon bigwigs who were visiting there. That's a lot that's sort of been lost, which is a terrible shame in a way, but that's history, I suppose. What happens to the monastery that she had built up and when did she die? What sort of legacy was she leaving? Yeah, she dies. I mean, I've seen estimates for her death ranging from 714 through to 716. And I think a consensus at the moment is around about 716. And she immediately becomes the focus of veneration. She becomes a saint. Now, her monastery seems to survive the Viking invasions of the 9th and 10th century. And there may well still have been nuns as well as priests there as late as 901. But later in the 10th century, it seems to become um, a minster. That's the centre of the dissemination of the Christian message. The staffed only by priests. But Milberger most definitely remains a potent presence there. Her relics are mentioned in an 11th century source as resting in Wenlock. That means that they're enshrined within the church there. I see. And can I just pick up on this idea of sainthood, which Mm. came quite, I think, soon after her death? How was that acquired? What was significant about her life and her actions that enabled her to get that title? That's a really good question. And, you know, we're used today about the Pope declaring saints, aren't we? That there's an official process of papal canonization. Only the Pope can say who a saint is, and it comes after a very, very long process. And that starts in the 12th and 13th centuries. Back in the Anglo-Saxon period, someone is a saint if they are venerated as a saint. Now, it tends to be there are a number of factors associated with it. Holiness of life, importance of life, miracles attributed to them. The what's called the elevation of their remains. That's basically the the taking of the the physical remains from a first tomb and then being put in a a shrine, usually raised above the pavement of a church. Actually, some that process is skipped in in some instances. That the the relics, that's the physical remains of a saint, are put straight in a shrine of some kind. So it's a much less formal process than the one that we're used to from today and indeed later in the Middle Ages. But it's still very, very much a status of sanctity and sainthood that is conferred upon them. Okay, so it's basically that um, she had this high status, this excellent international reputation, and she was from an influential family. That kind of helped confer this, this saintliness. They all helped, but she had to do the other bits as well. The holiness of life, or what's interpreted as holiness of life. And she has helped affirm and consolidate the Christian message and miracles which are described in later sources, it must be said. But it does seem to be that the author of these is working from neo-contemporary sources to Milberger. But she does, God through Milberger is working miracles. And that is another key determinant of sainthood and as we will see and as we'll see imminently i think boy her miracle working powers are not restricted to the 8th 7th and 8th centuries 
One of the key dates, of course, in English history that um, many people will know is 1066, the Battle of Hastings, the invasion by the Normans and William the Conqueror taking the English crown and throne. So what impact did that seismic event of the Normans coming over and booting out the Anglo-Saxons have on Wenlock? Well, it becomes the site of a monastery again. Between 1080 and 1082, Roger Montgomery, a rich and powerful Norman lord, founds a monastery at Wenlock, and it's for Cluniac monks. I think I need to unpack that a little bit. The Cluniacs were one of the most important monastic reform movements of the Middle Ages. The head of the order was the Abbey of Cluny in central France, which then founded a whole network of dependent monasteries across Europe. The monks who settled at Wenlock came from a very important Cluniac monastery called charity sur loire so they're French monks. Now, the Cluniacs were very famous for their art and architecture. They very much believed in the importance of the beauty of holiness to encourage contemplation on the divine. And they set about very quickly building a stone a monastery at Wenlock. Their first priority would have been the church to celebrate high mass, and the eight elaborate services that punctuated their day. In this Norman period, in this post-Norman period, Michael, I gather that Milberger actually goes through a sort of popular renaissance. So several hundred years have passed. She sort of brought back into fashion. Why was that? Yeah, I mean, so much of what we learn about the Norman conquest is pretty awful, isn't it? It's like, you know, the Normans taking over the kingdom and ousting Anglo-Saxons with great bloodshed often, thinking about the harrying of the North, events that lead to the foundation of Whitby Abbey, actually. It's a pretty awful period in history. Anglo-Saxons are displaced from their estates and indeed from positions of power in the church. But something quite interesting happens with actually not just Milberger, but an awful lot of Anglo-Saxon saints. Now, although the monks who settle uh, Wenlock are indeed of French origin, they take and very quickly take an interest in St Milberger and her relics, that's her physical remains. Now, they were far from alone in doing this. It happened at Durham, Canterbury, Whitby, where I've just mentioned, Winchester, loads of great churches across England where there are determined efforts to acquire the relics of Anglo-Saxon saints associated with these ancient foundations by these new French monks and high-ranking bishops and so on. Now, by the time the Cluniac monks arrive at Wenlock, we're told that the location of Milberger's tomb and relics had been forgotten. And all the monks have is a silver casket in which they told us some of her relics. But when they open it, they're disappointed to discover that there's only a few rags in it and ashes. Actually, they're still relics and are quite holy. But, you know, what you really want are the bones of a saint. Now, they start to speculate where Milberger's relics might be. And around about this time when Raymond, who is a lay brother of the monastery, so he's someone who hasn't taken full monastic vows, but still lives uh, under the rule of the monastery, doing more sort of agricultural and and labouring tasks. Now he, consistent with his status, is helping to restore the ruinous church of the Holy Trinity, which had probably been the church of the nuns. 
During his work, he discovers what's described as an old box containing a document written in English. And this said that St. Milberger's grave was in this church, close to an altar, which had now been destroyed. And after obtaining permission from the Archbishop of Canterbury, the monks sat around, uh, sat about uh, excavating the church to try and find the relics. It's a, a 12th century archaeological, ex- sorry, it's a late 11th century archaeological excavation. Well, God then, as now, moves in mysterious ways, and her relics are actually discovered thanks to the activity of two naughty boys who are playing amongst the dangerous ruins one summer evening. For on the night of the 23rd of June, these boys fall into a pit on the site of the church. And the next morning, the monks dig there and they find the bones of St Milgeberger exactly where the parchment said they would be buried. The monks are really chuffed by this discovery. They wash the bones and they keep the water, more of this later, and they place the relics in a new shrine or casket which they carry back to the church. So what year was that that the boys made this chance discovery? I actually had to correct myself when I was speaking about that. I said 11th century, 12th century. It's actually on the cusp of the two. It's in, it's in the summer of 1101. So we're just going into the 12th century. Now, you might be thinking, how is Michael able to give us all these details? Well, we know about it because of an account of these dramatic, one might actually say miraculous events, that was recorded by someone called Odo. He's said to be a cardinal archbishop of Ostia, that's the port of Rome, and himself a member of the Cluniac order. And it is near contemporaneous. It's written down within years of the events that they describe. Now, a life or an idealised biography of Milberger is then written by a monk called Jocelyn of Saint-Bartin, and he's a kind of jobbing hagiographer, goes from monastery to monastery, writing these idealised lives of saints. And it does indeed seem that he is using original 8th century documents whilst he's compiling this. Now, news of this discovery spreads rapidly in the locality of Wenlock, and it is very much to the benefit of the monastery. I'm thinking that perhaps loads of pilgrims from all over the country and perhaps even from abroad would make a trip to Wenlock to... Oh, you are, you're a historical genius, <laughs> you know. You've obviously been listening to the answers in previous podcasts, haven't you? They do indeed. Pilgrims flock to Wenlock and they're coming in search of miraculous cures. Which indeed, as the relics of, uh, well, as the monks would really hope they would do, the relics perform these in large numbers. We are told that people are cured of leprosy, of blindness, and in one particularly dramatic incident, and one that stuck in my memory, an individual who had been suffering from wasting, a horrible wasting disease, is cured after drinking the water used to wash the relics, and she vomits forth a huge worm that had been living in her intestines. Now, the relics confer legitimacy and identity on the monastery. Now, according to the medieval mind, Milberger would only have allowed her relics to have been discovered if she had wanted them 
to be resting in the church of the new Cluniac monastery. So she was showing that she approved of these new Cluniac monks. She might have been an Anglo-Saxon princess, but she's got no problem with these Cluniacs establishing a monastery on her site. Some scholars have also argued that the discovery of the relics and the miracles that they're working shows a reconciliation between the French and the conquered Anglo-Saxon, that saints and their relics are a conduit of healing, not just for diseased human bodies, but for cultural and political wounds in the body politic too. Now, as I said about identity, the monastery is dedicated in honour of St Michael, one of the great saints of Christendom, uh, very popular in France. Well, actually, it's popular across, as I said, across Christendom, but it's also dedicated to St Milberger. If I were a pilgrim and I wanted to visit Wenlock Priory and St Milberger's shrine, where would I need to go? Any great medieval church is going to have a shrine within it. And the sources for the 12th century church are a little ambiguous about where it might have been. There's some indications that they may originally have been enshrined on the outside of the church in some kind of narthex, perhaps, that's western area of it. So pilgrims have easy access to it, or perhaps in the nave. But the normal location for a shrine is the east end of a church. And the east end of the church at Wenlock, this, it's built by the monks in, gosh, you know, the, the late 11th, early 12th century. But then it is rebuilt on a monumental scale between about 1180 and 1200. And that is, I'm sure, to provide Milberger's relics with an appropriately magnificent setting. Now, they'd probably have been placed behind the high altar. That's where daily mass is celebrated. And around the east end of the church would have been an ambulatory, a walkway. The pilgrims would have gone in one door, then they would have processed around or walked around this walkway, venerated the relics, come out of the church a different way. It's, it's necessary for you to have these things, not just to add status to the shrine, but so that there's no crush of pilgrims. It's, it's a safe place, pride control. So these relics are safe things to visit. As we sort of begin to close out our conversation, Michael, how would you describe the level of fame of Milberger during her life and then Milberger as a saint after her death? How widespread was her fame? Wow, another excellent question. I just do think that the cumulative contemporary Anglo-Saxon sources are showing that she and her monastery is very well known across the kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England and into mainland Europe as well. That she's a saint whose sanctity endures through the Viking invasion period and is revived again by the arrival of the Cluniacs. And then we've got some firm evidence of just how well-known she is as well, especially when you look at liturgical books. They're the books for the Mass and the Divine Office. They're the eight services sung at monasteries, punctuating their day from other Cluniac monasteries. And that shows that her feast on the 23rd of February, that's the day of her death, was very, very widely observed. And so too was what's called a translation feast. That's the day when her relics were placed in a new shrine. And that was on the 25th of June. And that's obviously when, from around the time, isn't it, when her relics are first rediscovered on the, the night of the 23rd of June. Now, she's also included in various collections of late medieval English saints' lives. 
And that includes mention of her many miracles. And I think one of them is worth talking about, actually, is she shares it with St Hild or Hilda at Whitby. And that includes banishing the geese that were scoffing the Abbey's uh, Abbey's grain, rather. There's uh, another Anglo-Saxon saint at Chester, also an abbess, who is likewise associated with this miracle. Very interesting indeed. And we also know that four ancient parish churches across England have a dedication to Milberger. So there's a kind of indication there that she's, um, she's fairly well known. Another crucial date, of course, for anyone who has a passing interest in English history is um, the 1530s to the 1540s, the dissolution of the monasteries or destruction of the monasteries, as it really should be called, by King Henry VIII. So what happened to Wenlock during that period, also known euphemistically as the Reformation? First of all, I think there's some really interesting evidence. One of the big debates, you've got about the Reformation and the dissolution And historians, what, 500 years later, are still arguing about its causes. And one thing that always comes up in the debate, um, pendulums swing to and fro, is whether or not the monasteries deserved it. Did they have it coming to them? I'm very firmly of the opinion that although monasticism had faults, and it always had faults, look at sources from any period in monastic history, and you will find reforming abbots or external sources throwing their hands up in horror at what's going on in monasteries, but you will equally find evidence to balance that. And we have some evidence from Wenlock indicating, I think, some of the vibrancy of monastic life there. Some of that relates directly to Milberger. She is so crucial to the identity of the monastery at that time. And we can find evidence of this in some of the surviving books from Wenlock. There are only six of them, but written within them, by the monks, by the monks in the 15th century, are prayers, uh, little sort of requests to Milberger asking for her forgiveness, for her help. There's prose and poetry written in her honour. The monks clearly saw her as their friend and as their protector. They still thought she was capable of coming to their aid. Now, when it comes to what happens at Wenlock in the the late 1530s, well, the power of relics was still such at that time that reformers made real efforts to destroy them. Now, it's partly to show that, you know what, they don't work. But it's also knocking out a key focus of veneration. And they still are, relics still are popularly venerated at that time. It's to knock them out of the equation. For the reformers, these relics are little more than tokens of superstition. The financial accounts of Henry VIII also give an idea of, well, why you might want to take down a shrine like that of St Milberger. Now, we don't know exactly what happens to it, but huge amounts of gold and silver from Wenlock and many other nearby monasteries end up in Henry VIII's treasury, and I'm sure some of that is from her shrine. Now, what actually happens to Milberger's relics? As I said, deliberate efforts were made to destroy relics to show that they have no power. So that sometimes they're publicly, what's called a kind of public humiliation, sort of burning of relics and, you know, sometimes it's even burnt in ashes, then put into a cannon and fired so they can no longer be venerated. But elsewhere, we know that relics were being hidden and secretly buried 
some relics of St. Chad were at the dissolution of uh, the monasteries were from, from a nearby monastery were squirreled away and to a local Catholic manor house, uh, rediscovered in the 17th century, I think, and now rest in St. Chad's Roman Catholic Cathedral. Whether or not that happened to Milberger's relics, well, it's just a matter of speculation. She sort of disappears into the history books without any real physical remains. But her sort of spirit lives on in that sort of Christian sense uh, with her legend and her story. And of course, here we are talking about her today. So what is, from a historian's perspective, Milberger's legacy as, as Milberger and St. Milberger? Well, I think for her legacy, just go visit Wenlock Priory and see if your jaw drops as well when you see the magnificence of those ruins. They truly did blow me away. But as you said, the fact that we're still talking about her today, she is such an interesting historical figure from this key period in English history when the English, that's the, the Anglo, the sense of the Anglo-Saxon conquerors, are converting to Christianity and helping to forge in many respects an England that in some ways is still with us today. And then there's something about the revival of her veneration in the Anglo-Saxon period. It's hard for me not to get a little bit misty-eyed and for the hairs on the back of my neck to prick when I think about that. This is a time of immense violence and conflict. And here we have a saint who's reaching across the centuries mm. to have some kind of role in reconciliation and healing in a and giving people a shared identity, a tie that binds them together. And I talked earlier in the podcast about more than that unites than divides. And that was certainly the case with a common religion between the Anglo-Saxons and the Norman conquerors. And Milberger was played a role in consolidating that. We move forward and we have the dissolution and Milberger has nevertheless remained, despite England's in the 16th and 17th century, going into the 17th century, definitely in Shropshire, where a lot of prominent families do remain Roman Catholic. There's a long and painful reformation there. But she still remains this figure, not of, of local pride and identity, not just for Roman Catholics. And I think to go into the parish church at Wenlock and to see that she still is a focus of veneration there. And while we're talking about her today and we're disseminating her fame, speaking about her legacy to people from around the world who will be of multiple faiths and norm. And I think there's so much about Milberger that's interesting. And I do hope that people will take the opportunity to find out a little bit more about her and the extraordinary era in which she lived. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're delighting in drink as we explore a brief history of booze. The true golden age for cider in England was the 17th and the early 18th centuries. And it was a real sense of pride to make really good ciders that you could have on the dining table and to drink like wine. Thanks for listening. See you next time.